Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz, the pastor of Family and Children's Discipleship at Curtis Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and Tony Trussoni, the family and student pastor at Faith Family Church in Finksburg, Maryland. Okay, Tony, it's time to do this again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How have you been doing? Transitioning spring weather is kind of starting to seep in, you know, at the end of February here. Uh, how about up there in Maryland? Yeah, it's been really back and forth. Uh, yesterday it was in the 50s, and today it's in the 30s. So you never know what it's going to be around here. But, you know, the weird thing has been, you know, we are that we are a union state, (laughs) uh, northern state, uh, relatively speaking. And, you know, we normally get some snow up here, but we've really not gotten a single real snow at all this year. Uh, So, um, you know, it's been very light on that capacity. And it's already it's felt like it's been spring the whole year, the whole winter, though. So interesting. Okay. Yeah, we've we've had back, back and forth with cold. I mean, it was I think the low today is supposed to be in the 30s or probably in the, the evening, but um, it's sunny right now, so uh, it's been nice. But there's been a lot of rain though, so it's kind of hard. The kids get trapped in the house all day, and you know, needless to say, they have lots of energy that doesn't always get used constructively. They can't go run and play. So children have energy in the winter now. So, but yeah, <laughs> the warm months are so great with uh you know, with that aspect. And, uh, you know, I, there's some part of me that likes seasons, you know, I'm from the Northern Midwest where, you know, we have long, harsh winters, but, you know, pretty nice summers. Uh, but you know, I, I'm all for not having seasons when I have kids in the home. Well, I guess you could move to Hawaii or San Diego or someplace like that, but uh, cost of living goes up pretty, pretty high. With the spring kind of rolling in, you know, baseball season is is all what's sort of underway. You know, the folks are at spring training, spring training games are going on. They don't really matter, you know. Um, but I I'm looking forward to baseball season. How about you? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it'll be. It's funny. I always get uh, excited about it and plan on following it pretty closely uh, more than I did the previous year, and then I always follow it even less each year than I did the previous year. And, you know, I haven't had as much time for it the past several years. But but so this year I'm going to amp up and get ready to follow baseball and then forget about it a day or two in. We'll see. Yeah, I, I really the way I keep up with it is checking scores online, but I don't watch the games. I don't think I watched a single game last year until I did see a little bit of uh, the playoffs which was heartbreaking. And so we know this year your Orioles are going to get mauled. Um, my Braves will make it to the division series and lose yet again for you know 20 years running. Um, but when you watch baseball, do you prefer watching your team play defense or offense? I, I think most baseball fans would say offense and uh – I'd say I I enjoy a I enjoy pitch a good pitching in battle, but uh, it's just you know there's not nothing uh, nearly as fun as you know something like a inside the park home run a rarity like that or you know uh, just or, or a great stolen base or something along those lines. So I definitely would prefer uh, seeing some sluggers go up to bait uh, up to bat rather than uh, seeing an incredible play uh, that in the field. 
Yeah, I think most people do enjoy seeing the hitting. Uh, the Braves used to have a guy named Ryan Klusko, and he said, I swing as hard as I can in case I make contact. And uh, and he could rock it, you know. Uh, and now the whole the launch angle and all that stuff plays in. But but anyway, I, you know, I was a little different because growing up having three Hall of Fame pitchers, I, I really and I was a pitcher myself, I enjoyed watching the pitching. Uh, I like watching Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and John Smoltz go out there and mow people down. And I, but I also enjoyed the hitting. But when when you watch baseball, you you can't just have your team do one thing, right? That's true. So, and that's actually why the team I grew up on, the Brewers of the you know of the early two thousands, uh, they did just one thing, and they did offense with a guy named Jeff Jenkins, who was probably the only guy who should have been in the majors, and because they only played <laughs> offense with one guy, uh, they did not result in having great seasons. I think they used to be like the worst team in baseball. Now I for the worst team in baseball again. <laughs> it's just funny how this works itself out. When I mean, Jeff Jenkins, uh, he was, I remember him being pretty good. And Jeremy Burnitz was not bad, um, from what I remember. I, just, I remember his name and seeing the Braves play them sometime. But um, Richie Sexton, for yeah. A while too. So he's actually from Georgia, I think. Um, but yeah, you you team can't only do one thing and so that that kind of transitions us to what we want to talk about today that uh, a more biblical combination of uh, not offense and defense but of law and gospel or grace and how it applies to our kids so get us started off tony what is this distinction between law and gospel and, and why does it matter yeah, so uh, that's a very good question, an important question that's been talked about for literally thousands of years. Uh, and uh, for my answer, I'm going to say- solve it all in the next few minutes. Exactly. So I'm not going to directly um, read aloud uh, some passages, but I'm going to say my understanding of that is very heavily rooted in uh, Paul's teaching in Romans in Romans seven and eight. Uh, And so I think the law was the first covenant that we couldn't keep. It was God's first promises, first initiated covenant uh, with with mankind uh, by by requiring perfect obedience in the sacrificial system to and some appearance wipe away sin. It did not truly wipe away sin. Uh, but under the law, we must be perfect as God is perfect, and we will get into heaven. Without question, uh, the law allows uh, law allows getting into heaven by human works, but they'd have to be perfect works, which is a bit of a problem. Uh, and uh, so I actually think in that, Romans seems to show us that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law for us. And in that, he uh, that guaranteed the new co- a new covenant by his grace uh, and through his blood shed for us. So I think uh, I see the gospel as, as in a lot of ways the fulfillment of Jesus' obedience uh, to the law for us. Uh, and, and so Romans actually says we die to the law. We became kind of widowed to the law. Uh, so that we could then become the bride of Christ and be uh, married unto the gospel. Uh, but I think beyond that, there is an, uh, that, uh, beyond that, there is an element to which the law does speak to us. I mean, all scripture is relevant to us. But this matters because our justification is at stake. If we do not understand the relationship between law and gospel, we don't understand how we are saved from our sins. So I don't know of anything bigger to get than this. Um, it is a really big deal. And, um, you know, even as we talk about this, I look around my office and I have a couple of pictures of Martin Luther, who is a big proponent 
of the the distinction between the law and the gospel. Uh, I think maybe sometimes in practice he actually gave a little bit more adherence to the law than he would say. But you know, Luther was sort of go go big or go home, say it hard or don't say it at all. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, I mean this this matters um, very very intensely for just day to day life. Um, <clears throat> now, there's been a renewed emphasis in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so on the gospel message itself, being clear about that, how it shapes the Christian life, how it shapes ministry, preaching, uh, so many things. And uh, anyway, I mean, there's these websites and conferences, the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and the Gospel Centered This and all that. So how has that been helpful for family life? Yeah, that's a great question. So, by the way, I, I wonder when, at what point we go full circle and we have uh, a book come out called The Gospel-Centered Gospel. You, know? <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it has put God back at the center of the story. As much as it's easy to pick on it at times, I think it's done a lot of great work. Uh, and I think it's helped, our, as a result, our families to see it's not about them. And so, you know, we often focus about like the uh, that the specifics and the nuances of theology uh, in the gospel centered movements, or you know even just the the uh, sometimes it can be a buzzword, but I think it really what much of what this has consistently done is is put God at the center of our story, where I think so much of American Christianity has made it the story of us. You know, God is our co-pilot, and I think that God is our co-pilot mentality uh, is destroyed at its core by the gospel-centered movement, uh, which is helpful for families. I think it has showed us, again, how much we need mercy from God and the, and the futility of our attempts to be the good Christian kids uh, for the kids in our ministry or for parents to have just the kind of good Christian kid uh, that uh, is good enough on their own. I, I think it also has fueled us through uh, grace, um, both in salvation uh, it has, I mean, obviously helped us see God's grace and salvation, but it's uh, really fueled us also in the in understanding grace and how it defeats shame and how God's grace, the good news, defeats uh, idols, how we can really fight against those kind of things by the gospel and how the gospel isn't just the ABCs of salvation. But I, you've mentioned before uh, the Tim Keller quote is the A disease of the Christian life. And I think that has largely come about from the gospel center movement or come about again. What do you think, though, Ben? Yeah, it has highlighted God at the center, and it has shown us that the gospel is relevant for everyday living. It's not just a message that unbelievers need. I mean, a passage I go to again and again talking about this to people is Romans 1, where Paul's writing to the church at Rome, people who believe the gospel, and he said, I've been eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. He's wanting to preach the gospel to unbelievers because they need to hear it. Now, we don't only preach the gospel, um, but we do need to hear it regularly. Um, a, a Luther quote, we're talking about Martin Luther, a Luther quote that uh, has stuck with me that I've, I've learned from Mark Seifred, who's uh, and he was a professor of mine. I don't remember if he taught you in seminary. Um, I did not have a Who's actually a Lutheran him. now. But uh, he said, you know, Luther, or Luther said, the gospel is a guest in our heart that that we must invite back again and again. The, the law mm. is is just always there. They're condemning us, 
showing us how we don't measure up. And it, it, depending on the strength of our conscience, we may be even more aware of that, but we have to keep inviting the gospel back, that we don't stand or rise uh, before God because of our performance, but because of Jesus as someone outside of us. Um, and so I think that has helped just, you know, how the gospel f- shapes marriages uh, and then how we teach our kids. And like you talked about the, um, you know, we can't be the good Christian kid just on our own moral effort. I think when we forget how central it is, what we end up saying like, okay, unbelievers need that gospel, and then we're sanctified by effort, you know, and just being good. And that's not, you know, Paul goes against that in Galatians 3, you know, that we're, you started by faith, um, you keep on by faith. Um, so why is the law needed for people generally, or if you want to go with adults particularly, but why do we need the law? Yeah, I'm going to answer this the same way that Christians have been answering this, uh, that since at least the Reformation, I think in a lot of ways before, uh, there's often been seen as three purposes of the law uh, and for people in general. First, the law is given to us to show us our sin and the, and in contrast the holiness of God. To, I think to really show us our, the gap then between us and God. And then I think the law is also given to restrain evil. Uh, it does not do this perfectly. In fact, even the Apostle Paul teaches that uh, there's ways in which, you know, I did not, he talks about he did not know what sin was until the law revealed it and so he'd fall, fall into sin. That doesn't mean that he wasn't a sinner before the law. Uh, but the law sees an opportunity through him, he says. But in general, I still think the Bible shows us that the law restrains evil in the world. Uh, and I think it also, lastly, it helps us to know how God desires to be glorified. Uh, so it kind of reveals uh, reveals his his truth, his way. Uh, and in that, you have to be very careful with that and allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament for us with that. Uh, but I still think that we clearly have, even Luther understood to some degree or another, that uh, the law is given also to help us know how God desires to be glorified. Yeah, that's a good answer. Um I'm, Lord willing, on Sunday going to start teaching through the Ten Commandments in a Sunday school class and just looking at, okay, what do we do with the Ten Commandments today? And looking at a book that somehow I got for free when we were in school, uh, Words from the Fire, and it's Al Mohler unpacking the Ten Commandments. And he talked about that that look at the law and, that you know, are there two uses or are there three uses? And, you know, he said how Luther uh, – in one sense, said no. There's not a third use. That law doesn't instruct us in godliness. It just condemns us. He said, but you know, if you look at his practice, he sort of backtracked on that. And I think there, yes, we're not under the law, but it does show us how God wants to be glorified. It shows us His character uh, and the kinds of things that He wants His people. How to best, how we can be fully human and be in His image is how we should live, at least in principle. Though there are aspects where we don't adhere to that because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Um, when it, I don't mix garments and these kinds of things, uh, that's not so much of a moral issue as say murder. Um, so yeah, I mean, we need the law. Why though, uh, do kids and teenagers need to hear the gospel and, and how do they need to hear it? They are born rebels and not children of God. So I think that is first off why they need to hear it. 
uh, you know, it's common too that we treat our kids as, you know, a nice little Johnny. And in fact, I remember uh, a seminary class of mine, uh, Russell Moore was a professor at Southern at the time, and he talked about a, uh, a woman pastor, I believe a Methodist pastor that he knew, uh, had said that her, that her son is not a sinner. Uh, and that you know it was born good, uh, and uh, the and uh, there was a joke you know that when he misbehaves you know I just redirect him with a shiny red ball, and uh, to show the error of that kind of theology, uh, the, uh, the 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 professor Russell Mork said uh, had, uh, told us that he had made a comment to his wife later on, you know I don't want to uh, run into somebody like that in the alley when they grow up, uh, and then his wife re- retorted uh, that's that is unless you have a shiny red ball, uh, but I know. <laughs> It's a good joke, uh, but we really are. Our kids are born rebels. They are not born children of God, and we act like it. Like we talk ab- ab- about all people, all God's children. The expression. It's not in the Bible, though. I mean, the Bible shows that we are born like in rebellion. We're born enemies of God, uh, and I think then when understanding here in the gospel, then they need to hear the gospel because bad people need good news. And they're bad people. Uh, and the best news is, is only good news to those who realize the depth of their rebellion. So, And I think they need to be immersed then in God's grand story of God's redemption, even an infant storybook. So that's a, that's a way that we can do that. That's how we do it. Uh, so even I know of uh, Jared Kennedy has a uh, like has like an infant and toddler storybook Bible uh, that in ways that infants and toddlers can get he shows how he shows God's great grand story of salvation throughout all of Scripture. Uh, but also I think on on the flip side when we look at it and ministering to kids and teens the gospel is uh, often also for Christians. Like you mentioned before, the vast majority of, the, of teaching on the gospel in the Bible is given to Christians. It's not given as a witness to non-Christians. And, you know, um, and so I think teens often need, for example, almost more than anybody else to understand uh, how the gospel impacts their self-identity and their anxieties and, and their hope and their restlessness. That's good. I mean, I, you kind of covered from down to toddlers on up. I like that. And yeah, we, there's we're not all God's children. Now, there is a subset of people who are God's children, and you know, we can talk about all of them. But yes, we need to hear the good news of how we can be redeemed from our sin and uh, the consequences of it, the power of it. And so, yeah, just applying the message to everyday life because Jesus came to not just forgive us uh, from our sins, you know, but God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He reshapes us Mm -hmm. and conforms us to the image of his son. And so we need to hear that grace. Um, I mean, Titus, I think it's three talks. It's either two or three. I always forget, but uh, it says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for, for all people. And then go down training us to renounce ungodliness and to live, uh, you know, godly, upright lives in the present age as we wait for him to return. So the grace came and it saved us, but the grace also trains us to live in a new way. And so that that grace comes from that that gospel message and what Jesus accomplished, what what that message is about. Um, So, yeah, teens, children, I mean, we want to to let them hear that over and over again because it's that – 
that guest that has to be uh, invited back again and again into our hearts. Well, Tony, do you think do kids and teenagers need to hear the law too, or do they only need to hear grace? So that's a good question. Uh, if they don't know the law, they won't appreciate the good news. Uh, and I think that is so important to understand uh, that there is no real good news. There's no gospel centeredness at all unless we have the law along come alongside of it. Uh, and actually, I know of a situation where some teens reacted negatively, I think, to clear teaching on sin, uh, and they didn't feel it, it was very gospel focused, actually. And I think in that, they actually revealed a deficient understanding of why we need the gospel. Uh, and so they need to see what God has saved them to as well. So it's not even just that they need to see what God has saved them from, uh, but they need to see that God God does not save a people randomly just so, you know, that they can have salvation, but he saves us to create a, us a people and a people for his kingdom and for his glory that live to glorify him. Uh, and so I think teaching that uh, teaching through that is important. Actually, what's interesting is uh, with our Sunday school with our teens, we really want to stretch them and encourage them to study parts of the Bible that they wouldn't think of at first. And so we ask them every year to kind of name a book of the Bible they want to learn about, and nothing is off limits. Uh, for Sunday school, and they always try to stump Even us. Song of Solomon. Yeah, I told not Song of Solomon. I specifically said not Song of Solomon. So sixty-five <laughs> of the sixty-six books of Bible, uh, and uh, the first year they picked Revelation, which is fun. Uh, and this year, I think to try to stump us. Uh, and as kind of a, a little bit of a uh, cheeky move, they picked numbers. Uh, and I think actually numbers, as much as it might seem irrelevant, and it's one of the least read books of the Bible, actually, according to Bible Gateway, it is so deeply relevant to us because uh, the gospel is all over uh, that because the law is there. The law, the law shows us our need for the gospel, and it also shows us the law in and of itself is God's mercy. God gives the law. For example, he gives the law right before they go into the land in Numbers, right after they screwed up so much that they don't even deserve to go into the land. So the law itself is an act of God's mercy, and so I don't think that we can split those up so cleanly. You can preach the gospel from Numbers, uh, and not just you know, explain some biblical passage and then Velcro Jesus onto the back of uh, it, it, you know, just exposing our sin and uh, God's grace in the midst of it. <clears throat> and so you have that law and gospel tension there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, our kids need law too. And, you know, you, you were talking we're saved to something. And I was meeting with somebody this morning and we looked at Ephesians 2 and we're saved by grace. And then in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works or to do good works that he prepared beforehand. And so he's saving us to go do something. And back to Titus, you know, he wants, he saved us to make us zealous for good works. And so the law does instruct us in, in some level, um, the kinds of things that please the Lord, um, and also just having our consciences awakened by seeing and being exposed to this is what God says. You know, in uh, the book Parenting by Paul Tripp, he talks about that, uh, holding up God's Word like a mirror to our kids and letting that be the standard that we 
we compare their behavior and their heart attitudes against. And not just, well, Johnny, this is, you didn't do what I said. Though they need to obey their parents, but you're using as much as you can, your standards letting them be from God and then saying, well, you're not measuring up to what God says. And so that they're getting to a place of, uh, they're coming to the end of themselves saying, okay, I don't measure up. I fall short of God's glory. And so I need his grace. I need his the, the salvation he gives in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, yeah, you, you cannot only have grace. And like you were talking about the Russell Moore story with the shiny red ball kid, um, that mother may have probably thought she was being very gracious, but I mean, in the end, that's not, that's a very cheap grace. Um, and so, yeah, they, they need the law and the gospel and grace. Um, so when it comes to discipline and correcting and training, what one wins out? Does, does the law need to win out? Does the gospel win out? How does that work? Yeah. I'll be brief because I'd love to hear some of your thoughts more on this. Uh, that my answer to that is yes, uh, because uh, it, and it might seem like a, a way to get out of it question, but I, I'm always really uh, cautious and putting one part of scripture over the other in that kind of way. I mean, Second Timothy three sixteen says, "For all scriptures, God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work." And if that's the case, then uh, we shouldn't have this winning out. We should see Numbers and the and Romans as both deeply relevant and helpful. Uh, that for our discipline, for our correction of our kids and for ourselves. Um, and, and I'll add real quick uh, something from a book. Uh, one book I'll refer to at the end is Gospel Powered Parenting. And I think I referred to this uh, teaching that really stuck out to me. Uh, he teaches about a biblical view of spanking. And he uh, encourages uh, to, he encourages in that book, William P. Farley, encourages parents to spank their kids, to clearly show the consequence of their action, but then spank them uh, and give them a hug afterwards as they cry. Uh, to remind them of the good, and and remind them of the good news that you know God spares His wrath uh, and uh, and withholds His wrath, withholds the just judgment that they deserve for their sin if they are in Christ. And so, in that, it's wrapping all together: justice, law, rules, and grace, and God's mercy and gospel. And I think that is such a perfect picture of how these come together in our discipleship of our kids. That's really good. Now, is that from the book Gospel, the Gospel-Centered Gospel? You said <laughs> no, the Gospel-Powered <laughs> Parenting. Okay, okay. So yeah, I've I've heard you refer to that a number of times. I, I want to read it. It's on a list, of, a rather long list of books that I would like to read, but haven't yet. But yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I think that kids have to learn consequences. There are consequences to your actions, and we don't do them any favors when we withhold consequences, whether it's we step in and give some sort of uh, uh, discipline or punishment, or, you know, we can parse definitions on that, but um, letting them face what comes around. Uh, And sometimes it's just natural consequences. You let them do something kind of dumb, and they go, oh, yeah, that didn't work out real well. But they have to learn ultimately that the wages of sin is death, and so that God steps in and intervenes at some point. And even before that, like when you go in the way of of sin, it's hard. There, there's some passage I believe it's in Psalms, and um, 
that says that the way of the sinner is hard. Like when you go against the grain of the way God has intended things, you're going to get splinters eventually. And so helping kids to see that dynamic, because, you know, back to to Johnny and the red ball, like if he doesn't learn that he's going to face consequences, I mean, that that's going to be a train wreck as he gets older, uh, which, and Russell Moore seemed to be really aware of that. Um, but they also can learn grace. And like you were talking about giving this the spanking when we have those instances of discipline is just a great context to, to teach them both, um, teach them when we fail to keep God's law and his standards, uh, it results in death. It results in punishment, but God is not just a judge. And so, I mean, like Farley was saying, just, you know, hugging them, holding them and that, you're you're welcoming them back in, and so it's it's not a one to one relationship. Uh, our you know like we're not directly just like God in that situation because, um, you know, we are administering punishment to the child or some sort of form of discipline, and extending grace at the same time. In the gospel, you know, God Himself takes the spanking. Um, and I know some who have have done that, like not that they do it all the time, but some instance came up and they were about to to administer a spanking to their kid, and then all of a sudden they spanked themselves, and the kid's like, "What? Uh, do you know anybody that's ever done that?" No, I don't. Uh, but it actually, might be from the same book that I think William P. Farley actually recalls an instance where a father that stayed in a car and in place of their kid like that they were in a situation they couldn't spank and and the kid had to you know basically be disciplined by sitting in the car with dad rather than going i think into a movie theater and the dad decided to let the uh that uh to let uh, the child go and he would take the punishment for him and miss part of the movie. So now, you know, if it was a terrible kids movie, I don't know how much they were receiving the punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've heard of something similar, like kids, two boys were just being really bad. And the mom was, took them to go get ice cream. And she's like, do you you guys think you deserve this? And I mean, they both knew they were old enough and aware enough that no, we don't deserve this. Why'd you do this? And she just used it as, a, as an opportunity to teach them about God's grace in the gospel. And so I think, I mean, there's a place for that. I've never done that myself. I, I've considered it, but uh, um, but we do have a great opportunity in, in those moments of discipline and correcting and training to teach both law and gospel. Um, so what are the dangers of too heavily emphasizing law? What are the dangers of too heavily emphasized law? That that is a very important question. Um, the I think that we can have a legalistic false gospels uh, as a result of too heavily emphasizing law. I, I think that is so clear uh, that I think it's the danger that Luther was fundamentally rising up against uh, was an overemphasis of of law. So, uh, but I think ironically. Uh, that who um, uh, that those who overly quote unquote emphasize the law, I think, will lead to softening the law to hold so that they can hold this, uh, ourselves over other people. Because you know, I think that those who only emphasize the law often do so to lift themselves up and to feel superior to other people. But when they do, though, they're actually undermining the law when it convicts them. 
uh, and just, you know, maybe adding their own laws or adding their ways around the laws like the Pharisees did. So uh, and I think another danger for those who are actually in Christ is that uh, I think overemphasizing the law, uh, it can lead to those who listen, those who are under a hard teaching of the law to, to have what the Puritans called melancholy, uh, spiritual mm. melancholy, a great despair and depression and lack of joy in God. And, and I think it can create people that uh, Richard Sipps called bruised reeds, those that are just so broken over their sin uh, that they, they question whether or not uh, God would give grace to them at all. And so I think it can do a lot of damage if we go too uh, far in law. Yeah, those are good observations. Yeah, I mean, can, there can be this legalism, uh, just a stiffness. And also it can be, um, I guess, less relationship emphasis. This guy that um, a friend of my, my friend, his name's Mark Bearden, and he said something that rules without relationship breeds rebellion. And not always, but often when I've observed someone or a setting where there's a real heavy emphasis on the law, relationships tend to be not as good. And and so that can just – yeah, I mean you talked about the, the melancholy and uh, it can just breed a lot of problems. Um to be a difficult environment to to grow up in as a kid or and I mean there are people now that are either a distancing themselves from the evangelical movement though they're not saying I'm not a Christian um, but they're distancing themselves from that or there's others that are doing their spiritual deconstructions and things whatever they you know there's different terms to describe that um, but they'll point to legalism within the the church culture as one of the reasons and there wasn't an emphasis on grace and things like that. And so I think that those are real things we should listen to, especially those of us who are shaping other people's lives, whether that's our own children or ministering to others, which is should be all of us in the church, um, not just a select group of people. So what on the other side, what are the dangers of too heavily emphasizing gospel? Uh, so that's a good question as well. I'm not thrilled, though, with that kind of terminology that we often have. Uh, that because, you know. Or we could say grace, maybe. Yeah, no, I get what you're going at. And I actually have an encounter with somebody who, who talked about overemphasizing gospel. Uh, and I think. That so, and I, I there are a lot of people who respond to the gospel center movement, for example, and say that it's an over over uh, emphasizing the gospel. But I think that that fails to understand that the gospel actually lifts up the law, and grace lifts up the law. It doesn't lower it, uh, because when mm-hmm. we properly understand grace and the gospel, it only comes as as a reaction of realizing the depth of our sin uh, and the high standard that God has set. For us, uh, but I do think, like with what you're getting at with grace, overemphasizing grace, uh, there is an old danger that even Luther spoke harshly against. Uh, uh, Error called that he called antinomianism, which is anti, which is uh, anti-law uh, approach. I think it can also lead people to hell. This kind of easy believism is what we might call it today, where you know you just uh, believe that uh, just check a box, pray a little prayer, and live however you want, and you'll go to heaven, which isn't in the Bible at all. 
I think it can lead to hell because repentance is clearly a required response uh, that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, it is a required response. Uh, and the Bible does have tons of imperatives. It has tons of commands, even if we admit that all imperatives are based upon indicatives or truths that are already the case in Christ. Uh, just no matter what a popular uh, preacher uh, that lived in Florida and uh, was a senate that was related to even a more popular preacher uh, wants to say, the Bible gives us a whole um, lot of commands. No, I, I, I appreciate the critique even of the question because, yes, we in a sense we can't, Overpreach the gospel. However, the the contents of Scripture is not only John three sixteen, and so I, I remember listening to a breakout session several years ago um, at a, from a conference and Carl Truman. I think we probably mentioned him on here before, and Truman has done a lot of work on Luther, and he was talking about how the preaching of the gospel itself, like sh- narrowly defined, is not enough. Um, we need more than that, and God has given us more than that in Scripture. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, from an angle of as we raise children and as we teach children and, and teens, um, if we only ever talk about grace and we never hold up law, we never give consequences, we never warn of um, how the wages of sin is death, uh, and we hold up God's standards, and and also give it as a, a in a positive way. This is the way to really fully be human and to flourish and to bless others. Then it's going to lead to a lot of selfishness. Uh, like you said, it could ultimately lead to hell because you don't really understand what you need to be saved from. Jesus talked about that. If someone who has been forgiven much, they will love much, and uh, and so. It can feel warm and fuzzy to talk about grace and just how how wide and expansive it is. Um, but if you never are reminded of the past or even you know ways that we continue to fall short of God's glory, then the grace doesn't shine nearly as brightly. We don't savor it as much. And I mean, Ephesians two talks about this. We mentioned this a few minutes ago, but Paul opens up that chapter saying, "You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Um, you were under the power of the devil, but God stepped in." But so he's reminding them, "You were dead in this, and you know because you had fallen short, you you did not um, you did not obey God." And so you know, you mentioned this, and I'm just kind of bringing a biblical text to it. But at the end of Romans three. Paul's making his case that we're justified, we're, we're set right before God by faith alone. And then he says in verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. I mean, ultimately, the law was getting us to a place. It was given to us for a purpose to, to expose that sin and point us to Christ. Um, and the law itself testifies of that coming grace and gospel in Jesus. <clears throat> So there are dangers on both sides, uh, and some people say you know balance is the key to everything. I'm not fully convinced of that, but um, and I don't even know if it's the case here. But we ha- we need both. We can't just have law. We can't just have grace. We are given both in Scripture, and so we need to to pay attention to both. And, and as we pass it on to the next generation, Tony, does this change? across the uh, child's lifespan as we uh, raise them, as we teach them in a church setting, um, this approach to giving them the law and the gospel, does it look different or is it just the same? 
I've heard uh, that a whole lot of uh, people teach that it does. I'm not so sure. So I, I think in some sense, uh, as it's been taught often, littles kind of need more law. You know, that, uh, you know, they need to know not to burn the house down and, uh, you know, and, uh, but I'm not sure that's completely what uh, you're referring to in terms of law. I, I don't know that uh, just giving rules so that, you know, they're kept safe and know how to live is the same thing as teaching them about the law. Uh, but I think the Bible commands parents actually, to defer, the first thing that they command the parents that in the Bible to teach young children about is the Passover, which is grace, ex- incredible grace that was undeserved uh, and where God's blood, where blood of a lamb was was put on a door uh, to protect people from the wrath of God that they too deserved. Uh, and so I think that's where I think the Bible shows us right away the little kids need to get the gospel clearly. They need a law too. Uh, but I think this is going to be somewhat more case by case. You know, as I know, I know teens that are broken by their inability to keep the law. Uh, and I know that those uh, that there, I know of other teens, for example, that think that they're fine. Uh, and I think this is the same with kids. I know of kids that think that they're good enough on their own. And I know of kids that are overwhelmingly broken over their sin. So I think this is more case by case than. No, that's a good response because all of us have a different makeup and our conscience uh, sensitivity is different. And so some need their conscience soothed. Some need a spiritual kick in the pants. And so it's going to take wisdom. And I, that was a good observation about the first thing they were commanded about the Passover and God. I mean, that's the paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament, and it becomes a forecast of what's coming. Um, and at the same time, in Deuteronomy, you know, the next generation, they're told they're about to receive the whole law, how to live as God's people in God's land under God's rule. And they're given a whole lot of other things that are not simply about his his saving grace, though they're reminded of it routinely. Uh, but, the, you know, Deuteronomy 6, which are in our intro, and thank you seeds um, for that, repeat them incessantly to your children. And so we're in, in uh, Ephesians 6 talks about uh, passing on the Lord's ways and uh, raising your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Now, certainly gospel factors in there. And I think the tenor of your home or your church, you want it to be grace. So in some sense, grace does win out. But we don't want to – I guess some of my concern in in the gospel-centered gospel uh, that we just forget about law. And um, as kids are younger, I think – I mean you said the, the littles need more law. There is an, an element in which, yes, I do agree with that. Um, uh, when you're trying to teach a child, especially the, the younger they are, you don't really need to tell them – and I guess I'm thinking in concrete situations. Um, you know, you have a two-year-old, don't touch the stove. Why? Because daddy said don't touch the stove. Um you know, and just a number of things where just this is this is the standard. You must obey me. Uh, and I've got a two-year-old, and I've had to you know spank him at different points because he's just he's being defiant. And so, but I've done the thing that, that Farley talked about. You know, correct him, uh, spank him, and then pick him up and hold him and say, "Daddy loves you, and you can't do this. You must obey me." And just trying to keep it at that. So their their grace is entering in. Yeah. Um, 
and I think, yeah, it just, in the end, it takes wisdom, um, like so many things in the Christian life. Um, so Tony, what role does wisdom play in properly using the law and the gospel? Obviously, I think it plays a huge role in light of my previous answer, but uh, um, the I think that's a great question. I think we need to really pray and rely on the Spirit on these kinds of things because mm-hmm. I think the danger, especially church leaders, you know, if you're a pastor listening to this, if you're like a youth leader or children's teacher, you need to be in some sense pastoral with this because there can be a lot of danger. You know, if, if you preach hard on repentance to somebody who is already deeply broken over their sin, you can, I mean, you can break them uh, in mm-hmm. the worst kinds of ways. But at the same time, if you don't break someone with their sin that isn't concerned with their sin, you fail to love them. Uh, that uh, we have to be careful not to be cruel with those who are the bruised reed. That I mean, Jesus, that's a bruised reed that will not break. Uh, and uh, just talking about grace, though, with a cultural Christian is spiritual malpractice. So I think we need to see that. We need to understand a person and see where they're at and what how they view their own sin and how we approach law versus grace. Because if they are already deeply bothered by their sin, if they're killing themselves over their sin enough, it does no good to extend a more of a beating with the law. But if they think that they're fine, uh, without any desire to glorify God, I mean, we need to bring the hard truth of the law so that they can possibly understand the good news because they don't understand the good news at that point. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. I, I think, you know, like you said, you have to be pastoral. There, there's not just a one-size-fits-all tool in your tool bag. Um, a hammer is great, but it doesn't make a very good tape measure or sandpaper. You know, it, it's good for the, the function that it's built for. And so knowing who needs to hear what and when. Um, and we did uh, an episode several months back with Dan Estes from Cedarville University on the first nine chapters of Proverbs in the book he wrote, Hear My Son, about growing in wisdom. And so if you want to learn more about that, go listen back to that episode. Um, it was, I think it was released sometime this summer, around August or something. But um, he had a lot of good insight. And so, yeah, it, it it takes looking and evaluating where is this person at. I remember listening to Don Carson or D.A. Carson talk about that dynamic in a different way. But he said, you know, someone comes to you and they confess – they're professing Christian and they confess to you that they've been sleeping around and doing all kind of stuff that dishonors the Lord and it's disobedience to his law. He said, you know, what do you tell them? He said the first thing should not be well, once saved, always saved, right, brother? Um, though they may be a Christian, that's not what they need to hear in that moment. Like, especially if they're not broken over, it's just like, oh yeah, I'm doing this. They need to hear a little bit of law. They need to hear about repentance. But if there's someone who is deeply broken over and what do I do? How do I um, turn from this? Well, then you don't need to, to dig in the, the conviction even more and just, you know, make them wallow in it. Um, and so I think that was really a wise answer. (laughs) Um, so, Tony, kind of as we wrap this up, are there any resources that you'd recommend first, just generally on law and gospel, um, and any specifically that rate, relate to how it applies to family life, to, to parenting, uh, all that? 
uh, on law and gospel. I know you're going to have some great resources, so I'll let you get it that uh, just because, you know, uh, who was a close professor to you uh, and wrote some great, great stuff on that. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> one thing actually that really stuck to my mind of this, and I was thinking about this, uh, was uh, a book, a little book by Joel Beakey, who is a professor of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, actually the president there. Shocker, I mentioned somebody who's over a Puritan thing. Uh, and he wrote a, a little <laughs> book called Bringing the Gospel to Covenant Children. And, you know, I think most of our listeners are probably Baptist or Baptistic. Uh, we're thrilled with those who aren't Baptist. Joel Beakey is definitively not a Baptist and believes in baptizing infants. And it, and it refers to that in the book. But I think a lot of the principle that he gets at is so helpful and wise in parenting in that. Another one, uh, two other things I'll actually add are that Gospel Power and Parenting by William P. Farley. Honestly, I I can't think of a book I want to give away more that I give away more often than that book. Uh, it's just a great resource for parents. And then uh, for children's ministry workers, uh, Show Them Jesus, I think, does an excellent job with this by Jack Klumpenhauer, uh, who we had in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, the professor that you were mentioning, he has actually written an article, an introduction to the distinction between law and gospel, um, <clears throat> Mark Seifert. Uh, I imagine, and I think I've read that before, it may be a little bit academic, but uh, I mean, it was written in a, a theology journal. But um, one, if you want to go the historical route, Luther's uh, The Freedom of the Christian, um may delve into that. It's been a little while since I've read that, but um, I actually don't have, I, I would just settle with the things you said. I, I really, Now that you said, you know, how you stack up that book from William Farley, I really need to read it. If it's the one they should go to, but there, there are a lot of helpful things out there. And uh, I, I guess I've yet to find one person that I've read myself that directly applied this to family life. I, though something is coming to mind just even as we talk about this, um, someone that we've had on this podcast more than once and I think we're planning on having again is Chap Bettis and his book, The Disciple-Making Parent. He does address some of this, I, if I'm not mistaken, and not in his book. He does in some of his articles, but he's just a um, – if you haven't been to his website, theapollosproject.com maybe or .org, um, he's just filled with a lot of – practical insight on taking God's word and, and putting it into play in your, your home. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe Farley's book is the one I need. Uh, cause I think it, I've made some missteps in that maybe where I needed to put some more law in and didn't. Um, but it is a balancing act, uh, getting them in the right proportion. And, uh, it takes wisdom. And like you said, the leadership of the spirit as he, shapes us and uh, helps us to know how to take God's word and put it into action in real life situations. Uh, so thanks for thinking about this with me today. Uh, I enjoyed it and I uh, hope it was fruitful for everybody to listen. So God bless. And God bless. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.